If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. As the Second World War raged, King George VI faced not only a battle for the nation's survival, but also for the royal family's reputation. And that reputation was under threat from close quarters, as some figures within the royal orbit were either linked with or sympathetic to Nazi Germany. Most notable among them was the king's own brother, the now Duke of Windsor and former Edward VIII, who'd abdicated the throne in 1936. Alexander Larman has written a new book, The Windsors at War, which explores all of this. And I spoke to him to find out more. The subtitle to your new book, Windsors at War, is The Nazi Threat to the Crown. And that's really what I wanted to focus on in this episode. So give us a brief introduction. What were the key threats to the stability and the reputation of the royals in the Second World War? Well, Ellie, there's two key threats to the reputation and stability of, of the royal family and the crown in general. The first comes in the form of a man who was king, the former Edward VIII. Because after he became Duke of Windsor, he was well known to be bitter against both his family and against his country. And so he was absolutely fair game for anybody who wants to flatter him and to give him the status and to give him the reputation that he felt he deserved. And of course, one of these people was Hitler. The problem is, is that he'd left Britain behind. And it'd be nice to say that Britain was a place where there wasn't any kind of Nazi sympathy and there wasn't any kind of aristocratic interest in the workings of Hitler. But unfortunately, this isn't true. And what happened was at the absolute highest level, there were people around the George of Elizabeth who were, they weren't even Nazi sympathisers. It was a stage beyond that. There were people who actually had a strong interest in the workings of the Nazi party. These people were people who at the absolute highest levels of society. So if you like, you can see George VI in this impossible position. But on the one hand, he has his, his Lord Stuart. He has lots of people at court who are very, very keen to, first of all, appease Hitler, and then possibly to go beyond that. Then on the other hand, he has his brother, who's in Germany, who's in France, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And it's an incredibly dangerous situation to be in, because you think to yourself, what do I do? I mean, it's one thing for us to be threatened militarily. It's one thing for the German threats to be one that lies in Europe. But what if it's that much closer to home? And I think it's important to establish at this point what the take of the king himself was on this. What can you tell us about George VI? ideas about Hitler and the growth of the Nazi regime. Well, George VI was somebody who, when he came to the throne at the end of 1936, did not want to be king. 
and he relied very heavily upon the advice of his of his politicians, the advice of his courtiers. Most of the people around him were pro appeasement. I mean, people like Lord Halifax, who was a foreign secretary, and Neville Chamberlain, who was a prime minister. They both believed that appeasement was the only sensible option, and that you could not possibly go to war with Germany because they felt that it would be absolute suicide for Britain, just still recovering from the First World War to be trying to take on this power which has completely revived itself and to be involved in military conflict. So George VI, very much up till about 1939, was an appeaser himself. He was somebody who had been told repeatedly by Chamberlain and by Halifax that appeasement was the only sensible option. However, his private secretary Alec Harding, who I've always thought is the great neglected figure in this story, was anti-appeasement because Harding, who himself had served in the First World War, could see for Hitler and fascism could not be reasoned with, it could not be bargained with. And so when Chamberlain came back from Munich in 1938, holding a piece of paper in his hand and saying, peace in our time, Harding could see it for the rubbish it was. And increasingly, even while people like Chamberlain and Chips Challen, who was the diarist and his friend, were going around saying, we are going to have peace, war has been averted, isn't this marvellous? People who are a bit more intelligent and a bit more perceptive said, no, no, we haven't avoided war. All we've done is to postpone it, which of course is exactly what happened. Of course, this was an era of constitutional monarchy. So why was this so significant? How much sway did the monarch have over political decision-making at the time? Or was it more about public image and public morale? Well, on the one hand, the king, as a constitutional monarch, had no actual say in the affairs of a government. I mean, he had no overt influence in what Chamberlain was doing and what Halifax was doing. But there was always the sense, and this had been increasingly the case with Edward VIII as well, that if you have a monarch who is going against what his government is trying to do and is acting as a kind of subversive influence, then you have an enormous problem. Because ultimately, the king was always this popular figure. He was a figure who, much more so than any prime minister until Churchill, people would look up to and take comfort in. Because the fact that the king was above politics meant that he could be trusted in a way that somebody who'd been voted in by the people couldn't. But of course, this meant that the king had to be absolutely on point when it came to any kind of decision being made. Because if a king was seen as being subversive or going against the government or perhaps having greater sympathy with Hitler and fascism, it would have been seen as at all convenient. It would have been absolutely catastrophic. But George VI was not somebody who had fascist sympathies, unlike his elder brother. He increasingly came against Hitler. I mean, his initial response was to see Hitler as a dangerous but unexceptional European leader. But by the outbreak of war, he was able to say absolutely unequivocally, privately, this is the greatest existential threat the country has ever faced. And of course, then the fact that his brother may have harboured these sympathies was a big PR threat, a big threat to the reputation of the royals at the time. Can you tell us a bit about the evidence we have that suggests that the Duke of Windsor did hold sympathies for Hitler and the Nazi regime? This one's a very simple question to answer. The Duke of Windsor went out to Germany in 1937 and was photographed meeting Hitler and shaking his hand. I mean, if you want to have an idea of Nazi sympathies, you don't get much more explicit than that. The single question that I've been asked most over the last few years is, was the Duke of Windsor a Nazi? And I say, no, he wasn't a Nazi because he didn't go around wearing a uniform and he didn't go around saluting at every opportunity, although he may well have done the odd Nazi salute now and again. But he was somebody who believed in a lot of what Hitler was doing. He believed in the idea of a strong leader. He's on record as saying that 
Britain might need a dictator one day. And of course, the unspoken implication was that he himself might have fulfilled that gap rather nicely. And so you can see that when he went out to Germany in the autumn of 1937 with, with Wallace to meet Hitler, to meet the rest of the Nazi party, on the one hand, he said that his visit there was solely to see the economic and industrial improvements that had been wrought over the past few years. But I think it's quite likely that he was taking notes as well and thinking, well, if the, if the call came and I had to go back to Britain as a, a kind of Fuhrer myself, you know, how would I do it? And what was the response of the rest of the royals and, and the royal establishment to this? Did they sanction this trip to Nazi Germany or was it very much, you know, the Duke of Windsor going rogue? The Duke of Windsor went entirely rogue. It was one of those things that his family found themselves looking at whatever the Duke of Windsor did with growing horror because usually they'd only find out about it five minutes before he was doing it. And all his communications with his brother, all his letters, they were never asking for permission or never saying, what do you think about this? Because he always saw himself, firstly because he'd been king, Secondly, as the elder brother, as the one who had the absolute authority, the absolute conviction that he had to act in a way. And of course, his his younger brother, George VI, was, he was in a fairly poor state because he had this stammer, which meant that telephone conversations between the brothers were often very difficult. And the Duke of Windsor would often steamroll his younger brother by just saying what he wanted. And so there's very much a sense that he was off doing these outrageous actions. However, it's important to remember in 1937 Firstly, Britain and Germany were not at war. Although Germany was seen as a potential threat, there was still no military action between the countries. All diplomatic relations still existed. While it might have been seen as a bad idea for Edward to have been behaving in this fashion, that's all it was. It was a bad idea. And actually, what was interesting is that his visit to Germany went over much, much worse in America than it did in Britain. Because in Britain, it was seen solely as a kind of the Duke of Windsor is off making a diplomatic mission. And so while people saw it as a very bad idea, if anything was to happen like going to war with Germany, on its own terms, it wasn't seen as catastrophic. But in America, which was increasingly taking against the idea of Hitler and the Nazi regime, Edward and Wallace were supposed to go to America on their own visit immediately after the Germany visit. And that had to be cancelled because the reception would have been so catastrophically bad they would have been chased out of the country if, of course, they were allowed in in the first place. So you can see that it was known to be a bad idea almost as soon as he'd done it. But it was one of those ideas that he was coerced into it by Charles Bedeau, who was the man who hosted his wedding. And Bedeau wanted Edward to go out to Germany so he could defend his own commercial interests. And it was very much a kind of quid pro quo. And the Duke of Windsor was not a very clever man. He was quite cunning, but he wasn't clever. And so he was absolutely prey for people who were more intelligent and more cunning than he was to be coerced into these situations. This question about a lack of intelligence is an interesting one. So in this period before Britain is at war with Germany... You suggested that quite a few British aristocrats may have harboured Nazi sympathies. Could you argue that there was naivety amongst those figures about the reality of the Nazi regime, that they were ignorant of of where it was going and where it was going to end up? Or do you say that the writing was on the wall? I think that a lot of people looked at Hitler and they saw what they wanted to see. They looked away from the treatment of Jews, they looked away from the violence of fascism and they looked away from the utter intolerance to everyone who wasn't Aryan. What they saw instead was, as Virginia Windsor saw it, a strong leader, a country that had gone from economic depression into being this powerhouse of production and powerhouse of industrial revolution. And they thought, well, why can't we have that in Britain? 
And the answer is because Britain doesn't have a fascist government. But then someone like Oswald Mosley with the British Union of Fascists, who took Hitler's ideas and wanted to apply them to Britain pretty much hook, line and sinker, he was seen, I mean, the, the tourist one, of course, is Lord Rothermere and the Daily Mail's headline, Hurrah for the Black Shirts. That was in the mid-1930s. But right up until, and I believe beyond the outbreak of the Second World War, there were a lot of people who looked at fascism and looked at Hitler and thought we could learn from that. And I also believe that until quite a long way into the Second World War, there were people, and the Duke of Windsor was one of these people, who looked at how the war was going and thought, okay, well, if Operation Sea Lion was to happen and Britain was to be invaded, I would be first in line to say that I, for one, welcome our new Nazi overlords. And I think there's a lot of people, some of whom, of course, never said anything publicly, who I think would have been very, very happy to have seen it of a Nazi invasion, as long as they could be waving the white flag and saying, come into my house, you know, let me make you at home. And I think ultimately that's because there was an attitude that politics in Britain in the 1930s, it was depressing. It was one coalition after another. There was no real sense of forward direction. There were people like Chamberlain, Stanley Baldwin, who were not seen as dynamic prime ministers. And it's not till Churchill arrives and actually gives the country this real boost of vitality, but you have a prime minister in Britain who can compare to Hitler in terms of the appeal, in terms of the... Because what, what Churchill and Hitler had in common was the fact that they both inspired and roused the people who needed inspiration and rousing. The only thing is that Hitler was a megalomaniac and a madman and Churchill wasn't. So by the time that uh, we did reach the outbreak of war, tell us about the role of the Duke of Windsor. What was he assigned to do during the war? Well, the Duke of Windsor was hanging around in France as war broke out. And while Chamberlain was broadcasting to his country about what was going to happen, the Duke of Windsor told the news and he said, hmm, I think in the end this might open the, the, the world for the rise of Bolshevism. And then he dived into a swimming pool. Because ultimately, the Duke of Windsor believed that Nazi Germany was not the true enemy. He believed Russia and communism were the true enemy. And he felt that a, a war against Germany was an incredibly badly advised idea. So what happened was after the outbreak of war, he had to return to Britain briefly because it was felt to be too dangerous for him to be in France. And initially, it was felt that he should be given some sort of role within the army. The Duke of Windsor went out to France shortly after World War II began. And he was given sort of various tasks, including, you know, helping to I mean, helping to inspect for soldiers is putting it a, a bit weakly. But essentially he was given admin tasks that were far below his because he'd been given the honorary rank of field marshal. And of course he wasn't allowed to behave as a field marshal. He had to behave as a fairly lowly sort of major figure. But initially he was quite happy to do all this. One of the things that he was doing was he was going and helping the British intelligence officers pass information back about the state of the lines in France because what he realised quite quickly was first of all if he was accompanying a spy or a member of the intelligence services it was much easier for that person to be admitted because you didn't say no to a former king. But secondly what the Duke of Windsor was able to see was that there was no possible way that the French lines were in a good enough condition for a full German assault to be with, withstood. So I'm a very much, I'm, I'm very down on the Duke of Windsor, as uh, anyone who's read either of my books will know. But the one thing I will say for him is actually he was doing some quite useful and valuable intelligence stuff at the beginning of World War II in France. And he was doing it quite willingly as well. And it's actually on the British that they saw him and were increasingly annoyed by his behaviour. And so he was patronised and insulted. And so almost in, in a huff, he ends up leaving France and going to Spain and Portugal, and that's where the fun begins. Where the fun begins? Well, tell us about that. 
In your book, you explore something called Operation Willie. Can you tell us what that is and its impact? Operation Willie was something dreamt up by a combination of Walter Schellenberg, who was a man who was very high up in the SS, along with Renard Heydrich, the so-called man with the Iron Heart, and Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was a former ambassador to Britain and, not coincidentally, a friend of both Edward and Wallace. And what they all came up with was essentially trying to turn the Duke of Windsor. And that was that would either have been straightforwardly kidnapping him and keeping him as a kind of a very high-class hostage, or it would have been coercing him via enormous bribes and promises of all kinds of influence to essentially make a public statement disassociating himself from his family's actions, by extension those of Britain. And they didn't succeed in Operation Willie because a lot of their tactics were quite ill thought out. And also because British intelligence got onto it and basically stopped him from doing anything outrageous. But what unfortunately is now quite clear is that the Duke of Windsor was always Nazi adjacent enough to be somebody who was liaising with these people and who was giving incredibly unhelpful information to, to, to at least neutrals who were more on the German side than the British side and collaborators, and if not outright Nazis themselves. And so what I find very interesting is that we all, we often ask, you know, was the Duke of Windsor a Nazi? And I say probably not. Was the Duke of Windsor a Nazi sympathiser? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Did he commit treason during the war? Yes, absolutely, 100%. And I think that for the extent to which he was conscious of committing these acts of treason can be debated. But he was giving the Nazis information which was useful to them, it was useful to the German war effort, and from a propaganda perspective, it was terribly, terribly damaging for the British. So what kind of information was that? Well, what I'm fairly sure of is that the most outrageous thing he ever did was to essentially give the Nazis quite specific information about the layout of Buckingham Palace. Because in September 1940, Buckingham Palace was bombed, and it, and it was bombed in such a way that only somebody who really knew the intimate details of where the family quarters were and so on, would have been able to target it. And the, the king and queen were incredibly lucky not to have been hurt or killed because it was a very specifically planned raid. And you think to yourself, okay, how do they have this information? Then the answer comes, the Duke of Windsor happens to be around Portugal not two months before with a lot of people, one of whom may well have actually masterminded the bombing raid. And you think, well, that's how the information would have been passed on, isn't it? But he would have said, oh, well, you know, <laughs> that was where I was sitting. That was where I used to have my quarters. And you think, okay, it could be a coincidence. It could just be a fact that the Nazis were very lucky. But you think, come on, it's not that likely to be a coincidence, is it? It was so soon afterwards and it was so carefully planned that there almost must have been some kind of complicity within it. Now, the question that brings is, did the Duke of Windsor want his brother dead? And I don't think he did. I don't think that he actually intended that he would he would have wanted his brother and his sister-in-law to have been killed. But on the other hand, would he have been that upset? I don't think he would. I think he would have seen this as being, I can now come back because obviously I will be asked to return. And perhaps this idea that he had, that he could have been a sort of, puppet ruler, if you like, and that he could have had Wallace by his side as queen, I think he would have rather liked that. So this is very high stakes stuff, the implications of what you're saying here. But so obviously at the same time as this, we have King George back in England trying to maintain the royal's image, trying to help the war effort. How much was he aware of what his brother was up to? 
Well, George was kept abreast of what was going on, partly through Churchill and partly through other intelligence services. But what he was also very much aware of was that there were people close to him, such as his Lord Stuart Walter Buchluke, who essentially had very strong Nazi beliefs. And these were being communicated to the king by letter and in person. And all of them were basically saying, not so much, you must seek terms, you must seek appeasement. But it was almost a step stronger than that. I mean, it was, there's one letter where the Lord Steward says to him, there are a lot more people out there like me who believe what I believe. And we all believe that war against Germany is fundamentally wrong. You have to try and come to some kind of accommodation so we can unite and fight our true enemy, Russia. This was a feeling that the upper classes had, that Hitler was not a bad man, that Germany was, was not the enemy they should be fighting, and that war was a very bad idea indeed. And the king, to his undying credit, was never swayed by this, despite the fact that he'd always been somebody who was nervous, he was always reliant on the opinions of others. But he believed that war, that he believed that war was being fought for the right reason. And so when the Lord Steward was making these threats to him, he essentially compelled him to resign. It was just really unfortunate that the next Lord Steward also had Nazi sympathies as well. Well, that's quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? How did that happen? Was there just not any kind of vetting process? No, there was no vetting process whatsoever. Or if there was, it wasn't a very efficient one. And the king was actually driven to write in his diary at one point, something along the lines of, why have all my Lord Stewards been Nazis? I mean, it's the post-bewitched, or perhaps it is Germanized. But in the case of Douglas Douglas Hamilton, who was this famous aviator, it was a more complicated thing, because when Rudolf Hess landed in, in Britain, it was with a specific intention of seeing Hamilton. The idea that one Lord Steward can resign, and it be a vaguely embarrassing, but no, you know, nobody really knows what's going on. It's not a public occurrence. But when Hess and his landing in Britain, which was a hugely high-profile thing and a huge propaganda coup for the Allies, when that occurred, there was a real sense that we have to make sure that there is no possibility that this can reflect badly. In fact, that Hamilton had, had known Hess, had visited him in 1936 at Berlin Olympics, and that he was in contact with, with Haushofer, who was a kind of go-between between Hess and between Hamilton. You think to yourself, okay, there's something going on here. And it was one of those stories that now we actually have the full insight into it, but for decades it was all quite difficult to work out what was going on. But the fact is, is that yet again, it reflects this rather close, rather uncomfortably close relationship between the Nazis, the aristocracy of the the British royal family. So with this understanding that George must have had about his brother's potential sympathies, why did he not choose, for example, to bring him back to to Britain so we could keep a better eye on him, essentially. Well, the idea of having Edward in Britain would have been seen as very dangerous. So what he did instead, he and Churchill decided that, he, that, that the former king should be exiled. And this job was found for him as being governor general of the Bahamas. And this was seen as one of the least appealing jobs in the whole of what was then the British Empire. Because you see, today, we think of the idea of spending a few years in the, in the Bahamas as a wonderful, luxurious thing. But in the 1940s, it was a place that nobody particularly wants to be because it was absolutely riddled with social, racial and class issues. It was in a very poor state of repair. The governor had a a demanding and difficult job, which required him to to combine administrative skills with very strong diplomatic abilities. And Edward didn't have any of these. 
But he was sent out partly as a kind of punishment, partly just to keep him out of the way. And he hated it. And he kept saying, I don't want to do this. I'm going to resign. I'm going to go off and do something else. And he had to be informed by Churchill, no, you can't resign. It's not, it's not up to you anymore. And of course, the hint was that if he caused difficulty, then he'd be brought back to Britain, then he could expect to face potential charges of treason. And so you think to yourself, okay, I'll stay in the Bahamas. <laughs> I mean, Edward clearly had ideas about his own importance, his own significance. But did everybody else agree with this? Obviously, he'd abdicated and essentially gone rogue. So why was he such a significant figure. For example, if he'd been installed in this hypothetical scenario as a puppet ruler, surely people would not have accepted him. Well, it's interesting when you look at British reaction to Edward, because he was enormously popular when he was Prince of Wales, because he was seen as glamorous, youthful, handsome and exciting. And even when he was king, I mean, his public face was a that of a man who people liked. I mean, he was he was far more famous and far more beloved than any film star or anyone like that. And there was still, after the abdication, there was still a kind of lingering warmth towards him in many quarters. Because, of course, people didn't know about his Nazi sympathies. I mean, even the visit to, to Germany was not seen as catastrophic in Britain as it was elsewhere. So, I mean, partly, of course, it's because of the royal family did not want there to be the propaganda coup of having the former king be somebody who was allied, whether tacitly or explicitly, with the enemy. But also it's the fact that he was he was dangerous because he was not an intelligent man. His vanity was very, very easy to flatter. And essentially, if you butted him up and said all the right things, he liked that. And he liked the idea of being somebody who was in control. And I think that that's why it was so dangerous. So as you say, a lot of this was not known about at the time. There was a lot of information that was suppressed. So when did all of this come out and what evidence did emerge? Well, the first big information were of the Marburg files, which were discovered after the end of the Second World War. These files basically were a record of what the Duke of Windsor had done in Portugal. And they made it very, very clear that, as, as I keep saying, this is a standard phrase, he may not have been a Nazi, but he was certainly a Nazi sympathiser. And it was incredibly embarrassing when this happened, but it also wasn't very surprising. In 1945, when it becomes clear that people like Attlee and Bevan and the King are seeing all of these files, their response is one of, oh dear, it's not, God, how could this be happening? It's more, it's all come out now at last, hasn't it? And they, were, they didn't come out for quite a few years for Marburg files, but when they did, that was what really led to the revelation of the Duke's Nazi sympathies. And I think ever since then, there's always been the steady drip, drip, drip. However, what is quite disturbing is that it's almost certain that there are some files and some information which don't exist anymore. And you do wonder if they were destroyed at some point, whether in 1945 or subsequently. And that, I mean, given what we know about the Duke of Windsor, which is fairly shocking and fairly damning, that there was yet more. There's even more embarrassing and even more damning. I mean, what could have been more damning? I just don't know. Um, so you mentioned the, the the Marburg files or the Marburg dossier. Can you tell us a bit more about what is actually in that and what it tells us and why it's so damning? What the Marburg files have in them is the revelation of the Duke of Windsor's indiscretions during Port in, in Portugal in 1940. And these indiscretions you could just explain away as the conversation of a man who's talking to a variety of 
Germans and a variety of Portuguese double agents. But it's also he's he's being very disobliging about his brother, very disobliging about his country. And essentially that's why he's committing treason. He is saying all these things along the lines of he doesn't believe Britain should be at war with Germany, he doesn't believe in the British war effort, but he doesn't believe that his remarkably stupid brother, as he calls him, is capable of, of ruling the country. And so yes, I mean essentially he's he is committing treason. He's committing treason in the most casual of ways, purely because he believes it's it's his right to do so. Well, do we have any evidence about how the Duke of Windsor reflected on the Nazi regime after the war? Well, as late as the 1960s, he was saying to one of his friends, I never thought Hitler was such a bad chap. And I think you can say unequivocally that, like a lot of people, like the Diana Mitfords and Oswald Mosleys of this world, that while the, while the Duke wouldn't have been going around rounding up people into concentration camps, he still admired Hitler. He admired what he did. He admired his vigour. He admired his reforming aspects. And I think also that he probably saw there was a sort of there was a correlation between the two of them because Hitler, of course, was somebody who rose to where he got to through vigour and through you know the idea of believing entirely in, in his own brilliance. And the Duke of Windsor had a similar idea, and it was an endless source of frustration to him that he couldn't achieve what he wanted to, because as a former king, he was working within far greater confines, far greater restrictions. And so, yes, I mean, I think that he would always have said the right thing when it came to Hitler, but I don't think he believed most of it. Hypothetical history can often be dangerous, right? This idea of what if, but it can also be really interesting. So I'll pose it to you and see what you say. Um, what do you think might have happened if Edward hadn't abdicated in 1936 and it had been him on the throne instead of George when the war broke out? Okay, I mean, this is a fascinating subject and it's one that I think about a lot. What I believe would have happened is that Edward had exceptionally strong sympathies towards Germany and he would have refused, I mean, absolutely refused the idea that he as king could have countenanced war against them which would have placed the country in another constitutional crisis and probably even an even greater one with the abdication. Because the whole point of a constitutional monarch is just that. You operate within the confines of the constitution. You do, in other words, what your government tells you to do. And Edward was very, very bad at doing what he was told. But obviously, in the context of the abdication crisis, he eventually abdicated and it was all everybody was on the same side. Whereas if you had a situation where he was refusing to give royal assent to what the government were trying to do. The question is, would Chamberlain and would Halifax have got along with it? I mean, would they have said, actually, we cannot be in a position that we are declaring war against Germany if the king is absolutely adamant we can't? And so the question is then, would it have been that Britain remained neutral? Would it have been that Britain made some sort of windy statement about how, well, of course, we understand the sufferings of our cousins, blah, blah, blah. Or, and this is the most subversive idea of all, would Britain have actually tried to ally with the Germans? I mean, would there have been the sense that with Edward VIII being this sort of dominant and powerful figure, would there have actually been pressure to have formed an alliance? Because when Hitler sent Ribbentrop to Britain in the summer of 1936, the explicit last words he said to him were, Ribbentrop, bring me the English alliance. And if that had succeeded, and of course, the longer that Edward VIII was, would have been king, the more chance it would have stood of succeeding, we'd have a very different world today. Of course, we'll never know, but it's very intriguing nonetheless. So, of course, as things turned out, the royal family did manage to, to deal with these threats and come out of the war with their reputation and their stability still intact. Can you tell us a bit about how they managed that? 
Well, what happened was that George VI found his mettle during wartime. Because I think it's fair to say that up to and including the beginning of war, he was not seen as a strong or confident king, partly because of his speech problems, partly because he didn't want to be king. And it came down to his wife, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, to very much be the person who kept him in line, who made sure that he was not uncomfortable. That, and it was a horrible situation for him to be in, because imagine having this burden of kingship thrust upon you that you've never wanted. And you've got to feel immensely sorry for him on both a practical level and a psychological level. But as war went on, and he found this alliance with Churchill, the two men worked exceptionally harmoniously together, and a friendship formed between them. And it's one of those stories that people often think it's just propaganda, and that it's, you know, it's apocryphal, and they weren't really that close friends. If you've been, as I have, to the Royal Archives, and you've seen George's diaries, then actually you see the warmth and the respect with which he talks about Churchill, and you see the way in which it really was a bromance, it really was these two men who came together in these, you know, awful difficult circumstances and forged this partnership which then made George the king this incredibly charismatic too strong but he became a leader and by the time on VE day he is standing there with his family in Churchill and, and, and on the balcony of Buckingham Palace and they're being cheered over and over and over again by crowds shouting we want the king we want the king it's because he's succeeded it's because he has taken this situation and he has become a figurehead he's become a leader where his brother never could have been That was Alexander Larman speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Alexander's book, The Windsors at War, The Nazi Threat to the Crown, is available now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can also read a feature by Alexander in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.